Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 15, Tall Tales. It's the 8th episode written by John Scheiben, and it is the only episode directed by Bradford May. And I only point out that it's the 8th episode written by John Scheiben because he only ever wrote 9 episodes of the show. His next episode is his final episode of Supernatural. So Folsom Prison Blues, four episodes from now. So <laughs> just wanted to point out that this is almost the end of our John Scheiben. And I really enjoy his characterization of Sam and Dean. And especially in this episode, that is particularly hilarious at a time in the season when we need a little bit of comic relief, even though in the true fashion of Supernatural, we don't actually get a lot of comic relief because in the end, you know, as most trickster episodes go, things get darker and darker and you know how it goes. But at least Sam and Dean walk away from this episode kind of at least feeling a little bit better. <laughs> like this was a little break from reality for them, even though it was a direct parallel to last week's episode. Meg was manipulating them, like working through Sam presenting a false reality to Dean and trying to force his hand to the larger narrative picture. And this episode is the trickster also messing with both of them, trying to push them, not in a, the same sort of way, not trying to force some destiny on them, but just making them aware that there is a larger story that's messing with them in a really meta way. And I love this episode for that because, you know, as seasons go on, obviously the entire story gets way more meta in that sense with, you know, introducing the author of the story as a character and making him God eventually in that universe, truly manipulating the story. Gabriel is sort of like, or the trickster as we know him in this episode, but spoiler alert, Gabriel, and I'm going to end up calling him Gabriel a lot because habit. And I warned people at the beginning of this whole project that uh, this is all spoilers all the time. Talk about Supernatural. So <laughs> we're going to talk about everything in context through the entire series. So yes, Gabriel. I mean, I don't think at the time they wrote this, they were like, ah, yes, this is actually the Archangel Gabriel, and he's going to be playing a much bigger role in the story later on. But for right now, you know, he's just pretending to be this lowly trickster god character. And no, I don't think they had any concept of that. I really do think at the time they wrote this, it was exactly what it looks like on the tin. And they knew they had a great character that hopefully they could bring back and use again the way they left it. But I had, I don't think they had any intention of saying, ah, yeah, well, what if he's actually Gabriel? And what if this is actually part of a bigger story? They were really good at taking their past and making it bigger. The show is obviously notorious for that. We get the whole fuck hands McMike, you know, God's second cousin or whatever eventually comes and is the big bad because the, the story just keeps getting bigger and bigger. But in a way, yeah, it works because it built off its prior narrative. It didn't just pull things out of thin air, even when it came to such nonsense as like the darkness that we all mocked 
for an entire hiatus that year. So, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a season where they have flashlights and candles and, you know, everything's just going to be dark. You know, there was a lot of comics that were just a black screen with eyeballs blinking because you couldn't see anybody because it was dark. Ha ha. But they made it work within the context of the cosmology of the universe they were building. So it adds to the story rather than take away or trying to be a cover up of past mistakes or trying to explain away past plot holes or whatever. So I like to try and look at the big picture and see how everything fits together like a puzzle. And this episode is great for that because there's so much here. Just the Rashomon structure of the episode where each character gets to tell his own story and then the final telling of the story through Bobby's perspective as an outsider to the events of the story gives us a truer look at what was actually going on. Bobby's the one who figures it all out because he's not embroiled in the nitty gritty details of what happened in this story. The bizarre but totally plausible to Sam and Dean events that they endured being manipulated into their little petty, you know, the way the trickster manipulates them looks exactly like a Sam and Dean prank war that we already know from last season's Hell House. Like, that's the entire then segment of this episode is like 80% of it is outtakes of their prank war from Hell House. So we understand the dynamic between Sam and Dean that this monster of this week is using to manipulate both of them. It's not Again, like I said at the end of last week's episode, this episode is not high stakes. I don't think there was a chance in hell that the trickster was actually going to kill them, even when he sicked the chainsaw people on, you know, at the end, the chainsaw massacre guy on him. I don't think his intent was actually to do them harm. He was playing with them because that's what the trickster does. This is like his howdy. I see you. Now you know I exist. Remember this face because you're going to need this in the future. Almost like this is his just giving them his business card. Like they'll need it again in a few seasons. And it works and it's fantastic. And yes, the trickster does terrible things to them. But he never does actually kill either of them or do direct harm to either of them. Everything is a quote unquote trick in his universe. Even when Dean gets shot and, you know, it, it's something that is better by the next, you know, as soon as he zaps them into the next scene, Dean's entirely better. It's playing with them, showing them behind the curtain just a little bit that there's a bigger story here and they're getting used by it on the level that we, the audience, can see this happening. But Sam and Dean, at the end of it, they just are like, okay, well, that was that creature. He's going to leave us alone now. Or they thought he was dead. So they were like, yeah, this manipulation isn't happening anymore. But in microcosm, it's telling us about the entire narrative structure that the show will then play off of through characters like Chuck, who is also God, through Metatron, who tries to make himself into God Jr., through the method of writing stories. Metatron was obsessed with human storytelling and took Supernatural and decided, hey, why don't I write myself into the character of the god and make my own story out of this? 
and we'll see Michael attempt to do the same thing and Lucifer attempt to do the same thing with Jack and even to a certain extent Chuck wanting to start that up again with Amara before everything went south in season 15. Chuck's alternate universes like he tried to write different variations on his story and watch them play out and yeah that's the meta narrative of supernatural and the cosmic structure of supernatural that Gabriel is the one who will eventually tell us in season five, you know, the whole as above, so below, it all mirrors and parallels. If it's happened in heaven, it has to happen on earth. And that's the rationale he gives for why the apocalypse needs to take place because Michael and Lucifer have to have that fight. They have to come, they have to have their resolution And one of them has to win and one of them has to die. And that's the story that the narrative is attempting to impose on Sam and Dean, even starting last week and starting at the beginning of season two with the whole, if you can't save him, you're going to have to kill him. Meg pushing Dean to kill Sam last week. And this week, it's more of just a lesson. Like, you know, y'all are being played, right? Not because Gabriel has any intention at this point of overturning that destiny. I mean, he want, he thinks it has to play out just as much as Michael and Lucifer do at the beginning of the apocalypse. Gabriel's just convinced that this must happen. That's the whole point of changing channels. You know, he's trying to get them to play their roles and they don't want to. And he, that's where he learns his lesson. We don't have to play these roles. We could choose something different. We can write our own story. We don't have to play into these scripted roles on a television show. That's Gabriel's whole thing. I was going to save this for the episode where I talked about the cosmology of the universe and the archangels and how all of that narrative fits into the narrative structure and mirrors it. But I kind of need to mention here, even though at this point in the show, we have no idea angels are even going to become a thing, let alone the four archangels and Chuck, the father figure over them that controls all of that. But I just need to mention it here because it so enhances my enjoyment of this episode, knowing that all of that is to come. I see the four archangels as Chuck's first I mean, when we know he created the Leviathan and then locked them up, but apparently they had, he had the help of the archangels for that one and had the help of the archangels to lock up Amara even. So what the order of that early part of the universe is, I have no idea, but I don't think of the archangels as Chuck's most powerful autonomous creations who went on like humanity did to become individuals. Like, I don't think they really have free will of any kind at all. I think they're more facets of Chuck as a creator god. And very egotistically reflections of different parts of himself. And Gabriel is the part that we associate with, like, season four and five Chuck. The writer dude in the bathrobe that just wants to be human and tell the story and is kind of funny about it and likes to play with people and put their own scenarios back on them just to see what happens. And so I think of the four archangels, he's definitely the most relatable (laughs) to humans because he's lived with humanity for so long. Not that he's human himself or trying to be human, but that he can play and fit in, even if it's in an antagonistic sort of way. We know Lucifer is the 
kicks over all dad's toys when he doesn't get his way kind of guy, which is like season 15 Chuck. And Michael is the whole, I have a plan and it must be followed, which is kind of like the end of season 14 Chuck. But I think all the archangels are more reflections of aspects of Chuck's personality rather than their own thing. I do think that choosing to see Gabriel here as a sort of first poke at Sam and Dean by this bigger cosmic force. I mean, yes, they already are being lured into their destiny by this whole Azazel and special children and demonic powers and plots that they don't realize just how big they really are yet. But this is the first time that the cosmos has really come to poke at them and they don't even know it and they don't realize it until they finally unmask the trickster like three years down the road. So it takes a long time for them to get there. But by that time, they have so leveled up as hunters. You know, they're still being led around by the nose by the narrative at this point. And they will be through like season four. So (laughs) once they get through season four, they start going, hey, no, screw this. We're doing our thing. We're not getting wrapped up in this. You can't make us play your game we're going to play by our rules or we're going home. So this is a long time before that, but I can't see this episode any other way. And I appreciate it for that. And I realize that because of the meta nature of this episode, I'm going to try and refrain from just stopping and giving 15 minute lectures after every scene because my God, nobody wants that. But You can begin to appreciate how much I just want to scream about this episode. I've only got like three pages of notes in my tag for this episode, but basically all of them are, yes, this is the meta narrative of Supernatural encompassed in one episode kind of posts (laughs) that go all the way straight through season 15. So yeah, I love this episode. It's fantastic. This is also one episode where I sorely wish we had the full script for. We don't. We have casting sides for the trickster and for the guy who gets abducted by the alien. And (laughs) so we do have the script portion of that where he's describing being probed and slow dancing with the, the alien. And reminder that the little girl from Playthings is in that rubber alien costume. So if that enhances your enjoyment of this episode, knowing it's like a nine-year-old girl inside the alien costume, slow dancing with the guy, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) What I do love about the casting sides, though, is that it's very, and why I wish we had more of the script, because, God, some of the author's notes in the script are fantastic. Like, reminding them that, Yes, this is from Sam's point of view, and he is telling the story, so it's obviously supposed to be very exaggerated in how he caricaturizes Dean and makes Dean look like an idiot even more than Dean ever would. And I'm assuming that the notes for Dean's first scene are the same, but unfortunately, we don't have those. I wish we did, because I want to know what he, how he told him to talk about Sam, because that it's just beautiful just the way it's all so over exaggerated and it was 
purposefully done that, you know, written that way to be that over the top for them to act out. So I love that. And I really wish we had the full script of this one. But no, we've only got like 14 pages of it. We'll take what we can get. (laughs) And I also really need to point out that the music that plays when Sam's versions of events at the bar are taking place, when he's describing Dean getting drunk on purple nurples with Starla, who, you know, is just like barely containing her alcohol. Um, (laughs) The music that's playing in the background was the winner of a contest that the CW held. Season two was the first one to air on the CW. They were trying to promote, you know, season one aired on the WB before it merged with the CW. But they were trying to promote the show and find new ways to tie it in with their fresh young audience that they were trying to pull into this sophomore year of the show that they didn't know how to promote, apparently, because (laughs) on a show that's centered around classic rock, they had a song contest on MySpace. Yes, remember MySpace? And the winner of that contest was going to have their original song used in an episode of the show. And I think they were trying to do it more like, you know, there's shows like Charmed and stuff where they had like a club where they'd have musical acts come in and perform on stage, like as part of the show. I think they were trying to make this be something like that. And yeah, no, CW, you really didn't understand your own show right from the start. So instead of the band getting featured on the show, they got played in as background jukebox music to a comic relief scene. So sorry, guys, but (laughs) that was the prize in this MySpace CW season two contest. (laughs) Welcome back to 2007. I think that's enough of the uh, background on this episode. So let's just jump right in. The then segment is funny because it's I don't remember if we've had another episode where they've used this particular musical cue in the then segment but they you will use it again but it's like the standard something funny and weird is happening here but it doesn't quite fit the usual supernatural like dark dramatic strings music and the tension of the whole saving people hunting things the family business intro that part's still there but it's over this lighter motif in the music that we will come to associate with yes weird pranky funny things are happening and winchester drama but funny is happening in hilariously meta fashion the opening shot of the episode is Dean saying the usual dad wants us to pick up where he left off, except it's Dean crawling through a sewer tunnel with a flashlight. And it's like, well, John left off, left you off crawling through a sewer tunnel with a flashlight. Hmm. Kind of how they're trying to figure out where they are, but they're still not quite to the surface of understanding the, how the cosmos is messing with them yet even though that wasn't intended when they wrote this episode, that whole bigger picture, nobody'd even thought it up at this point. But looking back at it now, it's kind of like, hmm, yes, let's go mining through the depths of the meta of this show. Because the mission that John gave for them 
didn't even come close to touching the surface. It was still like down in the sewers. Like <laughs> they hadn't even realized that, oh, wait, there's a surface level to this narrative that we're not even close to getting to yet. So I find it funny. haha. <laughs> now, being able to look back with what we do know of the later show, there's so many happy little accidents like that that make it possible for the show to have become what it did. Saving people and hunting things, the family business is Sam rescuing the little girl and playthings, who is, ironically, again, the little girl in the alien suit in this episode. Hunting things is Dean driving a big piece of pipe through a vampire in Bloodlust. The rest of the then segment is, like I said, like 90% their pranks from Hell House. Intercut with them calling each other bitch, jerk, wuss. You name it, but bitch and jerk are in there a couple of times. And them just generally being brothers to each other, like pranking each other and making fun of each other. It ends with Dean driving away and saying, well, bring it on, Baldy. So we're already prepared for this to be some sort of prank on them. Or there is pranking in this episode, and it's not just them calling each other bitch and jerk. There's an underlying theme to this episode. Which brings us to now. We open on a shot of an imposing gray stone building. It's obviously winter. There's snow on the ground. It's very cold out. And a man with a briefcase walking up to the building in the dark. We see a wide shot of the whole front entrance of this building. And it's completely deserted. The man walks up. He's looking down. And then he glances up. And suddenly there's a woman standing there by the stairs into this building. Dressed in a summer dress and doing something by the the stairwell and honestly I'm concerned for this woman who's playing this character because my god it must have been freaking cold to be out there in this light summery dress like geez but she hadn't been there in the wide shot she only appeared there as the man approached the stairs so already we know there's trickery going on here of some kind But I just have to pause and say, oh my god, this poor actress, she must have been so freaking cold. (laughs) As the professor gets closer, he notices she's buckling her shoe and doesn't even ask if she's cold or anything. He just is like, oh no, well, my office hours, are you, excuse me, are you all right? You know, he asks that. But once she confirms that, no, she's one of his students and she was waiting there for him, he just is like, oh, well, my office hours are Tuesday and Thursday mornings. And she's like, well, I was hoping I could see you now. And she's like a little bit flirty with the guy. And the guy's like, oh, well, then uh, why didn't you come on up? Like, not my God. How are you out here just dressed in that? You must be freezing. Why don't you come inside? Like none of that. This guy was just totally self-absorbed. So, yeah, I can see why he deserved his comeuppance just even from this brief exchange. Though, did he really deserve what he ends up getting? Up in the man's office... The woman picks up a book, and it's called Modern Morality by Arthur Cox. And she flips it over, and it's the professor's picture on the back. So we discern that he is Arthur Cox, and he has written about modern morality. And yet he is so easy to manipulate into this proof of his immorality that it's laughable. Like, yeah you can see exactly why this guy was targeted by the trickster. She confesses that she's not one of his students, really, and sort of 
leaves it as open innuendo of, as to why she's actually there and then pretends to be shy and turns away and it's like, I, I shouldn't have come kind of the deal. He's like, wait, no, he gets why she's there, that he believes that she's there because she's wide-eyed and young and he's somewhat of a celebrity around there and he understands her infatuation with him or whatever. And it's like, dude, come on. But apparently this is a thing that has happened to him in the past and that's why he gets targeted. I need to mention that before all of this, before she tries to leave, he's over at the other side of the room. He takes off his coat and hangs it up and opens his window. So there's like a little breeze coming through, ruffling the curtains. And before she can leave, he walks over to her and is like, he's just gross to her. He calls her beautiful, touches her face and hair, gets very in. And he even says, it would be wrong of me to take advantage of you. I just, uh... I respect you too much. And it's like, really? Really? And then he kisses her. And of course, she kisses back. And as they're kissing, she turns from beautiful young woman into rotted gray flesh, like zombie flesh, which, yeah. <laughs> he is horrified when he pulls back and sees her and begins stumbling around the room and like trying to get away from her and she's like what you don't like me anymore don't you want me as he's backing up toward the window we cut to a janitor standing on the stairs down below and just as he comes out the front door of the building a body falls behind him the professor he's basically scrambled out his own window in a ch in, in a bid to escape the horror in his office that he thought was going to be a good time yeah, no, he got what he deserved. And the janitor, as we know, is not a janitor. He's our trickster. And then we cut to the title card. We also cut to one week later and Sam and Dean are holed up at the King's Lair Hotel, the Lair of Kings. That's basically a dump. <laughs> we'll find out that they've been looking into this case of the professor and several other bizarre cases that have taken place at this same location. And they're having more trouble with themselves and each other, and they're not even approaching getting any traction on the case. Because in standard season two, nothing is what it appears to be on the surface. The first shot we get is Sam tiredly rubbing his eyes and sitting amidst a pile of books that he's looking through, trying to research what the problem is. And we hear music. It's the James Gang's Walk Away, which, according to the Super Wiki, has been used in the show before in Season 1, Episode 13, Route 666. So, hey, musical cue reuse. But the music is playing kind of loudly. I think it's funny that the song is called Walk Away, because what does the trickster want them to do in this episode? I mean, aside from poking at them for funsies, he wants them to walk away. He wants them to just move on with their lives and give up. He's trying to frustrate them into compliance. Even though in this case, again, the stakes aren't the cosmic level stakes that Gabriel will try and force them into down the road. This is just a practice run, an introduction, a business card, a handshake, a hello, nice to meet you kind of interaction rather than anything earth shatteringly dramatic but he is trying to push them into just walking away 
Dean, we will find out, is lounging on Sam's bed, eating something very messy. The transcript sub- suggests that it might be chili cheese fries. And <laughs> you, he's just eating them off a paper plate. The discarded carton that they came in is lying at the foot of the bed. He's got a soda propped against his leg. He's just being gross in Sam's bed for like just to be gross in Sam's bed paging through magazines and just generally lounging. He asks Sam how the research is going and Sam's like terrible. You know how it would go better if I could have my computer and he's like angry about this and Dean's like, yep, whatever. Okay. Sam gets frustrated with the music, asks Dean to turn it down and Dean's like, sure. And turns it louder. So Dean's just being annoying little bitch and Sam's just being annoyed little bitch and they're getting nothing done. And clearly this has been a devolving state for a while. If you notice the hotel room after a week of their residence there probably is just a disaster. When we go back to the beginning, like when they begin telling their tales, pay attention and you'll watch the background in the hotel room just progressively get grosser and messier and dirtier and more full of garbage as their story progresses when they recount it to Bobby. When we get the first wide shot of the room when Bobby comes in, just pay attention to just how disasterized this place is. And I don't even think Sam and Dean would normally be this gross. You know what I mean? Usually their motel rooms, even after days or weeks, they keep them pretty well tidied up because you know they got to live there (laughs) but nope this time they're just in it to piss each other off and dean is bored because he would leave and go do something else if he could but his car's messed up and sam's like i told you i didn't and then there's a knock on the door that interrupts what's probably a very long-standing argument if they're both being this passive aggressively obnoxious to one another I don't think Dean is normally intentionally gross to Sam. This is prompted by the entire week's de-evolution of their relationship over the incidents that they believe the other one perpetrated but didn't. All of this is the work of the trickster, pushing their buttons on purpose. Hell, the trickster's probably the one who programmed the radio station to play Walk Away. Like, you two are pissed at each other? You want this solved? Just walk away. All your problems will be gone. The gradual disintegration of the cleanliness of this hotel room, though, sort of mirrors exactly what happens to Sam in Mystery Spot as he slowly relives the same day over and over again. Each iteration, each time he gets to another day and we see it happen, the lighting, color saturation just drops just a little bit until... It's just almost completely grayed out when he's at the end of his rope, when he finally figures out what's going on. This is a sort of similar gradual fall into decline that they use again for the trickster. But Bobby's at the door. Sam answers it, lets Bobby in. He's like, oh, it's good to see you two again so soon because, you know, they just saw him at the end of last week's episode, even though it was under unfortunate circumstances. And <laughs> But yeah, good thing we got to see Bobby again so soon. Unfortunately, he's going to have like a, oh God, kind of forehead slap kind of experience with them this week. They kind of deserve it, though, you know. <laughs> 
Dean gets up from Sam's bed, shakes Bobby's hands like, oh, thank God you're here. Like, finally, we have a voice of reason in the house. Like, yay. Apparently, Sam didn't want to talk to Bobby about it over the phone because he was afraid Bobby wouldn't believe them. But now that Bobby's there in person, it's like, it's kind of funny that he didn't want to just explain this over the phone because Bobby would have probably just called the midgets and hung up on them because they're being idiots. But good thing he's there in person. He's made the trip. He's going to sit there and hear them out no matter how bizarre this tale is. Because I don't even think Sam and Dean really believe what they've been through in the last week. Because this is kind of a wild ride. When your trickster is pulling all of his trick ideas out of the weekly world news, things get weird fast. I personally love how Sam uses pretexted as a verb here. (laughs) That they pretexted as reporters from the local paper. Because there were rumors that the building was haunted by a girl 30 years ago who had been having an affair with her professor. And when, when the professor broke it off, she supposedly jumped to her death, just like this professor did. I'm assuming that that is the legend that the trickster was building off of to create this ghost that caused the professor to do himself in. That's the story. Sam is interviewing a girl and a guy and the girl is telling him this ghost story as if it was actually factually something that happened. And the guy's like, he's shooting holes in it from every angle. The girl's all interested because apparently the girl jumped from room 669 because if you turn the nine upside down, it's 666. And the guy's laughing at like under his breath at everything she's saying. She says, to this day, if you see the ghost, you don't live to tell the tale. And the guy's like, if nobody lives to tell the tale, then how does the tale get told? And she's like, Curtis, shut up. So that's the kind of uh, start they're getting to this case, which Sam already looks uncomfortable. But he's recording their conversation anyway. And he's like, well, at least this is a lead. It's a ghost, probably. So we can find this ghost and put it to rest and case closed. But of course, that's not how anything goes. Sam shuts off the tape recorder and excuses himself from that conversation and goes over to find Dean at the bar. This is the scene from Sam's point of view. Remember, they're both angry at each other at this point. They're frustrated because these events are now like a week ago and they have made no progress on this case and just bad things keep happening to them. So they're obviously putting a lot of spin on these recounts of what they remember happening and neither of them is accurate. Sam overplays Dean's drinking, his womanizing that but does it to such a level that it's like implying that Dean isn't even doing anything to investigate their case. And no wonder we found after a week of this sort of treatment that Dean is just literally just lying in bed being obnoxious to Sam. Like, you think I'm not going to work on the case? Well, fine. I'll prove I'm not going to work on the case and be rude about it. As rude as I can be. Then we will see it from Dean's point of view. But first, let's delve into how Sam remembers this incident or how he's framing it for Bobby. That Dean is just doing shot after shot of purple nurples and only into getting with this girl named Starla that is scantily clad and basically hanging on Dean and almost falling over drunk. And Dean's like, yeah, well, she's got a sister. Like, who cares about research? Let's just get totally wasted and 
we know that's not how Dean operates. He's not going to get drunk. He was frustrated with Sam two episodes ago in Playthings. He's like, you're drunk on a case while we're working a case? And like, literally, yes, they're working a case now. Dean is not going to get hammered and totally ignore the case. But this is Sam's recollection of it. When he gets to the point where Sam's just like, what the hell, Dean? Dean's like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how any of that happened. I don't say things like feisty little wildcat and her name wasn't Starla. And Sam's like, yeah, well, then what was it? And he's like, I don't remember. To Dean, this was just a woman he was trying to get information from. But to counter Sam's previous description, Dean totally overblows in the opposite direction and makes himself out to be some suave debonair guy who was just there to for serious business only and this woman is very elegantly dressed and she was a grad student which she may have been a grad student in anthropology and had information on local ghost lore and she was just trying to tell him he's so attractive and dean's like yes well thank you but there's no time for that we've got this ghost to discuss when sam comes barging in in dean's description just irritating and saying nothing of import. Even the music has changed from the band that I mentioned before about being the contest winners. And now all of a sudden it's like smooth, like, you know, it's not like party music. It's it's like more refined background music. But the woman tells Dean, I'm sorry, I can't concentrate. It's like staring into the sun. And she pulls him in for a kiss and Dean kisses her. Then Sam walks up and is Samming. <laughs> I don't know if you all have ever seen the Sam Samming post. Uh, it's fantastic. But I think this is actually one of the screenshots that is in that post. Because, man, that's a Sam face. I love it. Sam is like, Dean, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> and Dean's like, just please give me five minutes. He's still Mr. Suave. While Sam is saying, Dean, this is a very serious investigation. We don't have any time for your blah, 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 blah. And then Dean goes back to kissing her. And Sam just continues to blah, 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 blah in the background. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all Dean heard or cared about, but knew just Sam was being annoying and trying to get him out of there. Like, didn't have a lead on anything except the ghost in the building that turned out to not be a ghost. And Dean was obviously not getting urban legend lore from this woman, but wanted to stay. And yeah, okay. Sam just blah, blah. <laughs> Sam is the one who cuts in and is like, yeah, and that's how it really happened. I don't even sound like that. And Dean's like, that's what you sound like to me. And yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Brothers, man. Bobby's like, no, 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 come on. Tell me what's what's going on with you two. And he's like, you're arguing like an old married couple. And Dean argues, no, married couple can get divorced. We're like, what do you call them? Siamese twins. And Sam goes, it's conjoined twins. Like every little thing about the other one is getting on each other's nerves. And they both try and dismiss it as, yeah, no, we're, we've just been on the road together too long. We are just getting on each other. Everything's getting on our nerves. It's, it's nothing. It has nothing to do with the case. And Bobby's like, okay, whatever you say. And knows that there's something up with this. 
because this is not how Sam and Dean act. I mean, sometimes, but this is like the whole reason they called him in and they don't see it as a symptom of whatever is causing the problems in this town. They just think they're getting on each other's nerves. They can't see what's motivating them to get on each other's nerves. But Bobby, as a third-party outside observer, can. He can take each of their versions of the stories that have been built up over this week of being meddled with by the trickster and say, look, you're not seeing the truth and you're not seeing the truth and you're just letting your emotions carry you away here because you're being manipulated. But he doesn't get there yet because we still have more hilarity to ensue before then. But you can tell he's already on the right track here. So Sam gets back into the details of the story. He's like, no, that's unimportant. We're going to go back and talk about the case because that's why we called you. Not to solve our personal problems, but to fix this case. They go check out the scene of the crime. The janitor, the innocent janitor, who's, when asked, says he's been working there, mopping the floors for six years. Sam and Dean are there on the under the pretext of being DSL repairmen or installers who are wiring the building for DSL, I guess. Which, does anyone even have DSL anymore? It's, <laughs> it's ancient. But apparently that was the hot new tech then. So the janitor, is the trickster, says he doesn't understand why they're bothering with this particular office because it won't do the professor much good. And they ask, well, why is that? And the janitor's like, because he's dead. <laughs> they, of course, are curious and want answers to these questions. So they ask, oh, did you see it happen? And he's like, oh, I was the one who found him, but I didn't see it happen. But he did see him coming up. And then it's like, oh, no. Which prompts Sam to, of course, ask, what did you see? And he tells them about the young woman who came up with him that he never saw leave the building furthering the belief in this ghost story because that's the myth that he lured Sam and Dean there with in the first place. The one that Sam was told in the bar, the ghost of the woman who'd been having an affair with her professor. Nobody lives to tell the tale. And again, because this is Sam's version of the story, he has Dean doing something totally stupid, picking up candies out of a candy dish in the professor's office and just shoving them in his mouth. And he's now got so many candies stuffed in his cheeks that he looks like a chipmunk and can barely talk. That when he comes back into the scene, Dean's mouth is just, he's like, well, who is he with? Like, can't even speak clearly because he had so many candies in his mouth. It, like, freeze frames. And Dean interrupts is like, come on, I, I had one, maybe two. Like, we've seen Dean eat in interviews, like in the episode with Max Miller that he stuffed the cocktail weenies in his mouth. You know, he, he just ate them like at a normal human rate, though. He didn't stuff his face like a chipmunk. And that's how this became an in-joke on Supernaturals, because Jensen just went with it and ate some of the cocktail weenies like he knew Dean would if he'd been sitting there and there was food on the table in front of him. He'd eat it. So Jensen did. So they started writing that into the episodes that Dean eats whenever there's food in front of him. And apparently steals candy from crime scenes. Sam interrupts again and is like, just let me tell it. And so, unfortunately, the version of Dean we're seeing in this retelling scenario <laughs> still has his mouth so full of candy he can't even talk. 
They're asking about the woman that went up there with the professor that they never saw her come back out. They should go to cut to a wider shot. And not only is Gene eating candy, he's got the whole candy dish in his hand and he's just sitting there shoveling them into his mouth. But the janitor, the trickster, Gabriel, tells them that the guy frequently brought young women up to his office and calls him Mr. Morality and says, yeah, no, that wasn't that guy. Got more ass than a toilet seat, which is a horrible thing. But Dean, in Sam's flashback, finds it hilarious and tries to cram another few chocolates and candies in his mouth. And it's just like, God, it looks painful. How many candies? I just, I, I've got it paused on that scene. And oh, my God. <laughs> Jensen looks like he's borderline in pain with so much candy stuffed in his mouth. So, <laughs> God, you just know that can't be real because no matter how much Dean likes junk food, man, that is just (laughs) terrible. Terrible, Sam. How dare you? But they learn they don't detect any EMF in the building and there is no room 669 because the building itself only has four floors. So their whole legend of this ghost is falling apart. They have no way to figure out who this woman was or why she was there and even though now they have a witness saying that she did exist, even if we know he created her. But as they go back to their little hotel room, everything is still pretty much in order. It's still a rundown hotel room, but there's only like one pizza box that they've just brought in and set down on the table. There's only two beer bottles on the table. It's still relatively tidy for a gross old motel room. They're still working this case like there might be answers for them here. Poor babes. Sam gets out his computer and they've decided that their next course of action is finding out if a co-ed ever did die in that building and if it could be a haunting and if so, who is it? Actual case research like they usually do. Dean wanders off into the bathroom and Sam opens his laptop and is like, dude, did you touch my computer? Because it's frozen on bustyasianbeauties.com. And I would like to remind everyone that this porn was not put there by Dean. Dean wasn't using the laptop. He legitimately is confused by this. And he's like, Sam, why are you announcing to me that you got your laptop frozen on bustyasianbeauties.com and are trying to blame it on me? Because neither of them did that. It was the trickster. Just remember, all the weird shit in this episode isn't them. It's the trickster. Which I get if this is your first time viewing the episode and you don't know that yet, except you're primed to know that there's some pranking going on, you might think, oh, are they pranking each other? Did Dean deliberately do that to Sam's computer? But no, Dean's facial expressions make so much more sense when you realize, oh, shit, it wasn't Dean at all. It was the trickster. And yeah, there's some posts where Liz, Bob, and I, a couple years ago, got really incensed that all of these porn references that were deliberately created for Sam ended up transferring over to Dean as if Dean was the porn freak when the only porn we've seen in canon thus far has been tied to Sam. And Sam was watching Casa Erotica and Sam had Busty Asian Beauties on his computer because the trickster pranked Sam with that, knowing that Sam would be upset about this. And for some reason, like one of the later writers probably just got it in their head that, yeah, Dean's the porn guy. I don't know why, but because of these references, even though they were originally tied to Sam, get transferred to Dean. So I'm still kind of grumpy about that years later that 
Dean became the busty Asian beauties and Casa Erotica guy. Even though we know he appreciates porn, it's not used as a trope in the same way for him that it was originally established as for Sam. Bobby again has to break up their argument that they're getting into over the laptop to ask, well, did you find any details about a suicidal co-ed? What'd you find out about the building? Did you find out anything? And Sam's like, nope, because there's nothing to find because it's all the trickster. But Bobby keeps having to realign them back on track. They're both like, well, we're still not sure. And Dean's like, we didn't exactly see the next part, but this is weird even for us kind of deal. And we cut to Dean telling the story about this kid walking in front of that building again at night. It's kind of foggy out and wet and rainy. And a strange occurrence happens. The kid's looking around. He hears a strange noise walking alone at night. Looks around, sees nothing. Here's another strange noise. Looks up in the sky, sees nothing. Here's another strange noise and is hit by a giant beam of light that he looks up and he's terrified. He runs. He's got his hands covering his face and he's running away from it. And it locks onto him and just pulls him up into the sky. <laughs> in the beam of light, you can see that it's starting to snow. So you could tell when they filmed out of order here <laughs> that this was probably the first day of shooting when it was just starting to snow. But the poor kid gets sucked up into some alien spacecraft. Then it cuts back to the hotel and Bobby's like, aliens? And they're like, yep. Bobby's completely incensed that they would think it was aliens because in his entire life, he's never heard of a real alien abduction. They're all just, as he says, cranks and pranks. Nothing, none of it's real. But cranks and pranks sounds a lot like what's happening to Sam and Dean this week. They're cranky. And they're getting prankied. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> I shouldn't be allowed to do this. <laughs> Goddamn. Anyway, so we cut back to the bar from earlier. And this poor kid is sitting at the table while Sam and Dean talk to him. He's got three shot glasses lined up in front of him. He drinks one. And Dean advises him that he should try the purple nurples. Like, hey, good advice for a shot you might enjoy. <laughs> So the guy begins describing his abduction. He lost time. He woke up in this strange place and these creatures were running tests on him and then they probed him and Sam almost loses it. He has to turn away because he's like about ready to crack up laughing. And Dean is at least trying to take it seriously. He's like, they probed you? And the guy describes again and again and again. And he's just drinking his other two shots as he's trying to get through this description. He's like, yeah, but that wasn't even the worst of it. And I mean, do we even know what the probing involved? Or, I mean, there's the obvious uh, where the probe would go. But <laughs> he doesn't seem all that distressed about that because he's more upset at the fact that the alien then slow danced with him to Lady in Red. Which is in the script, because we have this guy's casting sides. <laughs> He's uh, forced to slow dance with an alien. Neither Sam nor Dean has any response at all for this. And you can see them starting to break that they are beyond their pay grade here. They're, this is something they have zero explanation for. They don't even have words for this. Cuts back to Bobby. And Bobby's like... You guys are exaggerating again. And in unison, they both say, no. 
and you can tell they have just completely lost any ability to can with this case. And they're like, we thought it sounded crazy too, but there's evidence to back up the guy's story. There's a circle burned into the grass where he'd been abducted, just like all the uh, alien abduction stories describe. They're trying to find any connection they can between the angry spirit and, as Dean described it, the sexed up E.T. And it just freeze frames and cuts to another scene of them interviewing a guy who had pledged to the alien abduction victims fraternity house turns out he was the pledge master clearly dean is relating this story because sam is overly like completely over the top sentimentally emotionally reaching out to this guy like the infamous you're too precious for this world i acknowledge you your pain you brave soldier you know and the guy's like no i'm fine Sam just hugs him out of nowhere and interrupts Dean's storytelling. It cuts back to the hotel. He's like, I never said that. And Dean's like, what are you talking about? You're always saying pansy shit like that. And it keeps cutting back to Bobby, who's scrutinizing the two of them, like eyes darting back and forth between the two of them, like he's working it out. He's working out why they're talking about each other like this. And he's starting to see the real problem underlying that they're both blind to at the moment. We cut back to the kid that they're interviewing who tells them that, yes, Curtis deserved whatever he got because he'd been the pledge master at the fraternity, that he'd tortured them all semester. And so basically he just got what he deserved. And he has very little sympathy for the guy because, you know, the guy tortured him. And then Sam and Dean go back to their hotel room. It's just a little bit junkier than it was before. Their previous pizza box is still on top of the fridge, and the collection of beer bottles on the table has grown. There's other stuff now littering the counter. As they walk inside, Dean takes off his coat, throws it over a chair, sits down in the other chair. Sam goes for his laptop, and it's not in his case. And Dean's trying to point out what's going on in this case. He's like... Well, you got to admit, the professor and the frat guy were both dicks. So maybe that's the connection. It's just who they were as people, which honestly is on the right track. Because that's why the trickster is targeting these people. He's giving them their just desserts, what they deserve in his mind. Comeuppance. Cosmic consequences. Here you go. That's a word for you. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sam is so distracted because... His laptop is missing that he's not even hearing what Dean's saying. If busty Asian beauties freezing out his laptop wasn't enough to upset him, maybe just disappearing the laptop entirely is enough. Meanwhile, while Sam is tearing the bedding apart and looking at Dean's side of the room for his laptop and getting angrier and angrier about it, Dean is basically describing the profile of the being that they're hunting for. He's like, the morality professor gets caught cheating on his family and on his wife, kills himself, and then the pledge master at a fraternity gets hazed. It's kind of poetic. And Dean's like, well, it's more like limericks, but Dean is spot on on his assessment. But Sam's just like, ahaha, very funny. Like he didn't hear any of what Dean said because he's entirely focused on the laptop because he blames Dean for having taken it. 
as if Dean was pranking him, as if this was something Dean would do. Sam's like, you know, I put up with a lot from you, your dirty socks in the sink, your food in the fridge. And Dean's like, what's wrong with my food? Sam's like, it's not food, it's Darwinism. And Dean's like, I like it. And he's not even upset yet because he doesn't have anything to be upset with yet. And Sam's like, well, how would you feel if I screwed with the Impala? And Dean's like, it would be the last thing you ever do. I don't think that Sam has realized that he's been messed with now. And Dean is just like, well, you obviously lost it because I didn't touch it. Sam's like, well, we keep our door locked so nobody else could have gotten it. It's like, dude, anyone could have gotten it. You know, you're dealing with something that messes with people. Maybe you should start looking outward instead of at each other. But nope, Sam is already on the massive grudge train, believing Dean first broke his computer with the porn and then now has stolen it or hidden it. Dean still insists. Bobby interrupts them. Did you take the computer? And Dean's like, no, no, I didn't. He didn't put the porn on it. He didn't take it. He didn't do any of it. They get one more case to investigate, and he sort of fits the pattern because he's a research scientist who apparently tested on animals, and Dean judged that to make him a dick. So apparently that's the pattern. Dicks get messed with by the thing that made them a dick. The guy cheating got killed by a vengeful spirit has to do with cheating. The guy who hazed his fraternity pledges gets hazed by aliens. And now the guy who does animal research testing supposedly gets attacked by an alligator from the sewer. Thrilling. And totally plausible. (laughs) We see the man in question come out of the same building, go over to where his car is parked, except he sees something glint down in the sewer grate. It's a fancy gold watch. And he thinks, wow, it's my lucky day. I found somebody's fancy gold watch. And he gets down on the ground and reaches his arm down into the sewer drain to pick it up. While he's stretching, trying to get his hand on it, something growls in the sewer. And then we hear crunching noises and his face is spattered with blood. Something clearly attacked his arm from inside the sewer. The police didn't release a cause of death on the guy, but Sam and Dean decide that they're going to go check it out for themselves. They break into the morgue at night, climb in through a window, and pull the guy out. And all that's left of him is like an arm and a leg in a tub. It's just gross. Sam tries to take a closer look at it and spot something unusual. And that's when they find what he implausibly identifies immediately as an alligator belly scale. As if that was something that Sam was intimately familiar with identifying and the police had completely overlooked, which, I mean, all of this is just so wildly implausible because trickster. Dean's like, well, that's just unbelievable. And Sam's like, well, it's a classic urban legend. People flush their pet alligators down the toilet and they end up living in the sewers and growing huge. And Dean's like, yeah, but that's not real. That doesn't really happen. Sam's like, well, yeah, neither does alien abduction. This is when they first suggest that maybe it's time to bring Bobby in on this because maybe he has seen something like this before. And Dean's like, yeah, your classic haunting alien abduction alligator in the sewer case. Yeah, that happens all the time. But to be thorough, they decided to check out the sewer anyway. 
And Bobby's like, well, did you find anything? And Dean's like, yeah, I found something, just not in the sewer. And this is where we begin to see Dean's reason for being pissed off at Sam. Getting accused by his brother just sort of rolls off of him because we know Dean has taken the blame in the fall for probably Sam's entire life to let Sam just keep on keeping on. If Sam's angry at him, Dean just lets it roll off. He's not going to argue back. He'll just state over and over again, yeah, I didn't steal your computer. But he's not going to yell at Sam or argue about it with that. But this, this is a step too far. He finds his car with four flat tires, which, if you'll recall, Sam's like, how would you feel it if I messed with the Impala? And Dean's like, it'll be the last thing you ever do. And at the time, I mean, he's not actually going to murder Sam over this, but he's not pleased. And He's like, is this Sam trying to get revenge at me for something I didn't even do? Now he's rightfully angry at Sam. He hurt his baby. And if that wasn't enough to convince Dean that Sam did this, he finds Sam's money clip on the ground next to the driver's side rear tire. Like, Sam would be that careless because, I mean, honestly, he's already lost his laptop during this episode. Maybe he's just that careless overall this week and dropped his money clip there. But Dean considers that proof that Sam did this because now Dean's irrational and granted they've had to do some really stupid stuff this week and endure some really stupid stuff in this case is just getting stupider and stupider. (laughs) But it's also making them stupider and stupider. He's just tipped over the line far enough to believe that Sam would actually drop his money clip and not pick it up there. That Sam actually did this to his car. Just like Sam had been pushed far enough to believe that Dean would put porn on his laptop and break it and then hide it all together. Dean gets back to their motel room to find Sam there paging through a book trying to research what on earth this could be. And Dean is angry. He's like, you think this is funny? And Sam has no idea what he's talking about because, again, Sam didn't actually do that and he didn't actually drop his money clip there. That was done for him by the trickster. Dean refuses to give Sam back his money. Sam thought it was in his pocket and he realized only after Dean showed him the money clip that, nope, my money's gone. This is where they totally break. Dean's like, I'm keeping it for reparations for emotional trauma, for having damaged his car. Sam's like, I've had it up to here with you. And Dean's like, yeah, same kind of Sam reaches to grab his money clip out of Dean's hand. And this devolves into the worst childish game of keep away (laughs) where they end up falling off the bed. And I love it on the gag reel. They actually show them like going all the way off the edge of the bed. It's hilarious. The poor things. They must have had so much fun filming this. They cut back and Bobby's like, yeah, I've heard enough. And Dean's like, yeah, well, you showed up about an hour after that. So that's all there is to this story. We're back to where we began at the beginning of this episode. Bobby's like, I'm surprised at you two. And he gives them the lecture they deserve because this is their just desserts. Having sense talked at them by Bobby. Bobby is like, okay, Sam, first of all, Dean did not touch your computer. And Sam just is like, like trying to get upset because he truly still believes Dean touched his computer. Bobby's just like, no, shut up. Nope. Dean did not steal your computer. Dean doesn't gloat over this. He doesn't make a comment. He doesn't go like, yeah, what he said. 
To him, it's already washed off Dean. When Bobby turns to Dean and says, and Sam did not touch your car. Sam's the one who's like, yeah. And Dean just says nothing. He's like, just taking this time to process. Because as I said earlier, Dean just lets this stuff roll off. He will take all the blame for stuff and just keep working forward. But he has a limit. They both have a limit. And their limit was reached in this episode by the trickster. Bobby's like, if you'd both been able to get your heads out of your asses long enough, you'd realize exactly what you were dealing with. It's a trickster. It's messing with you deliberately. Bobby goes on to describe them as they create chaos. And the trickster obviously realized you were onto it. And it's got you both so turned around that you're just angry at each other instead of seeing that the trickster was doing all of this to manipulate you. Then he goes on to list, you know, Loki, Anansi, and that they're in cultures all over the world, dozens of them. And one of them has clearly settled in this town and is causing chaos. That one of the trickster's abilities is creating and disappearing things out of thin air as fast as you can blink that they target the high and mighty to take them down a few pegs or the whole thing that Dean had pointed out with the, it's kind of poetic, more like dirty limericks. Well, that's it. (laughs) Justice, just desserts for people who think too much of themselves or as Dean classified them, dicks. Dean asks Bobby what they look like. And Bobby's like, well, human mostly. Dean's like, well, I know who it is then. He turns to Sam and is like, who do we know who's been at ground zero this whole time? Sam thinks about it for a second and gets the knowing look on his face like, oh, no. And then we cut to someone reading the weekly world news with an alien made me its love slave, an article. And clearly where our trickster is getting its ideas for how to torment people. The next article he reads is alligators terrorizes the sewers. And then the next one after that is uh, about a chainsaw massacre. And we hear the voice. Ah, that, that looks like a good one. We pan back to see the rest of this apartment where the guy is sitting. There's scantily clad pictures of women on the walls. And we see that it's the trickster. It's the janitor. It's Gabriel. And he's got a cute little dog who he calls over and decides it's snack time makes a whole table full of snacks appear and decides that's not enough and then has two lingerie model types appear to enjoy his little snack with. And now that we've mentioned the weekly world news, I need to stop because I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the episode, but on the Super Wiki, if you click through every week, there's a still, usually from the episode, that sums up the episode's plot. It's the single image at the top of the page. This week's is not a still from the episode. It's a promotional photo because it shows Sam and Dean standing there in their little DSL repairman uniforms reading copies of the Weekly World News. Because when this episode originally aired, the real Weekly World News in our universe printed a, like, three-page spread about Supernatural and this episode. So, yes, there was a crossover into our universe on this, and there's just 
randomly an article about Supernatural there. I guess they were trying to appeal to the Weekly World News crowd to come watch Supernatural. Because remember, season two, they're fighting for ratings. They're fighting to get renewed at this point. They didn't know if they were going to have a season three at this point. And yet they're getting kind of desperate towards the end of the season. And they want to make sure to please the networks and get the ratings and get eyeballs on the on the show right around now because this is when they started to announce renewals for the following season. So anything they could do to promote the show in any way, but that was their big tie-in. Not even kidding. Weekly World News. I only remembered because ostensibly the photo was taken while they were filming this shot in the stairwell with the janitor, trickster, Gabriel. (laughs) Back to the episode now. The trickster tells them, Yeah, sorry, I'm dragging ass today. I was a little busy last night and has to clarify for them that, yeah, that he had lots of sex and that's why he's tired today. (laughs) So, so, uh, (laughs) I mean, he's already on to them that, you know, they're hunters and I have no idea why he even would announce this to them, but just to bother them, I guess. I don't know. But they're back to theoretically check a couple offices up on the third floor of the building. They get halfway up the first flight of stairs and Sam is like, oh, uh, sorry, I left something in the truck. Um, I'll catch up with you. And then goes back downstairs while Dean leads the trickster upstairs. But Sam didn't leave anything in the truck, of course. He just wants to check out the trickster's office to find any evidence that the janitor is the trickster. As they left... The janitor locked the door to his little office slash cage, whatever it is. (laughs) But Sam goes down, picks the lock, breaks in while Dean is upstairs, keeping him busy going around doing DSL technician things, I guess. Sam looks around in one of the lockers in this room. He finds a weekly world news with aliens abduct cheerleaders as the headline in the front page news. So could that be next? As they leave the building a few minutes later, Sam's like, just because he he reads the Weekly World News doesn't mean it's our guy. He's like, tells Dean, you read the Weekly World News too. Dean's like, no, I'm telling you, this is our guy. Sam's just like, I just want some hard evidence, some proof that it's this guy. And Dean's like, well, Bobby said that they have a metabolism that's really fat. They always have sweets, sugar, candy bars. And Sam's like, well, I didn't find any, not even like equal. And Dean's like, oh, yeah, because you never miss anything because you're Mr. Perfect. And Sam's like, what? That kind of breaks character is like, can't believe Dean would say that to him. And it's like, dude, the two of you are arguing. Just roll with it, dumbass. And yes, we know they're putting on a show for the trickster here, but The hesitation in this argument means that, yeah, what they're saying is actually hitting. Sam's like, are you still upset about what that trickster did? Dean's like, no, no, you've been a tight ass since long before the trickster. Like, what they're saying is actually hitting each other. Like, (laughs) even though they're just play acting it, there is an underlying truth to how they feel here. Sam's like, well, okay, you just stay here and keep an eye on the janitor. I'm going to go check out his place and see if there's any actual evidence before you go barging in to stake the man. And Dean's just makes his little grumpy face like, why am I being postponed from my performance of my 
hunting here. The entire time this conversation, you can see the trickster standing up in the window, looking down on them, watching them argue with each other as if, yes, his plan is actually working. They're doing what he expects them to do. Sam tells Dean to wait until he gets back, and Dean agrees. He's like, okay, okay. And the trickster watches Sam storm off. And then we cut to a little bit later after dark has fallen, and Dean is now the lone guy out in front of this building. Whenever there's been a lone guy out in front of this building so far in this episode, something trickster terrible has happened to them. Dean, of course, runs out of patience waiting for Sam, but again, this is all planned, and finally just goes back into the building in search of the trickster. Dean goes downstairs and checks out the janitor's office. Nothing there. He goes back upstairs like he's going to continue on to the upper floors of the building, but he hears something, and he turns around and goes back to the main floor, and here's music, opens the door on an auditorium where Barry White is playing loudly, and there's a very strange setup on the stage. It looks like the opening scene of a porno, this bedroom setup on the stage in this auditorium, round bed, twinkling lights, Barry White music, two women scantily clad lying on the bed waiting for him. And Dean's like, what, 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 what's going on here? <laughs> this is not what he had expected at all. It's a very strange production the school is putting on. If this was actually a college campus production of anything, rather than getting tortured or killed, Dean is being offered a distraction that will feel completely real. Even though he knows, he's like, ah, oh, come on, you, you're you not real. And they're like, well, it'll feel real. They're like, we'll give you a massage. Just come lie down. Dean is just like, okay, this is not what I, not at all what he was expecting. Dean's like stuttering a little bit. He's like, I'm a sucker for a happy ending, but I'm going to have to pass. From behind him, he hears the trickster tell him it's a peace offering. He wants Dean to just distract himself long enough for him to move on to the next town. Just let him go. The trickster explains, you know, I known your kind before, hunters Dean's like well you know you hurt people and he's like come on those people got what they deserved hoist on their own petard like he just facilitated their instant karma but he goes on to explain that he likes Sam and Dean that he doesn't want to do anything to them that they don't deserve to get whatever desserts he could serve them Dean's like tells the trickster I dig your style He appreciates the imaginary women on the bed waiting to pleasure him in whatever way he wants. He's like, yeah, and the slow dancing alien. Yeah, the trickster laughs because, yeah, that was bizarre and hilarious. But Dean just can't let him go because he can't. He just can't. He can't let him go. He feels obligated to stop him from hurting other people, even people who might deserve it. Not his place to judge. The trickster responds with, well... Sam was right. You shouldn't have come alone. Too bad I like you, but I got to do this terrible thing to you now anyways to stop you from (laughs) killing me. Dean's like, yeah, you're right. And then Sam comes in one of the doors to the auditorium. Bobby comes in the other, and they're both armed with stakes that, according to Bobby's lore, 
will kill the trickster. And that's when the trickster tells Dean, so that fight you guys had outside, that was a trick. And Dean just like, what do you think? Did I do good? And the trickster's like, yeah, not bad. And is impressed with them. And honestly, even if he had already figured it out, because we know that, you know, he's still the trickster and that we know how this episode ends. I think he genuinely likes Dean and appreciates him. It's like a little mutual appreciation society, but they still feel like they have to do what they have to do, which is one of those themes that's constantly cropping up around Gabriel, like through his entire run on the show. This struggle between feeling like you have to continue the thing, even even if it's stupid and you hate it and you disagree with it or you regret it, but you got to do it because you got to do it kind of deal like with the whole apocalypse you know the player roles and right up to getting his revenge on Loki all of it is like has this weight of obligation to it that is something that they all need to begin to let go of like they don't really have a choice because you know he's going to survive this episode even though they think he's dead and come back because he's not a trickster and that wasn't really him and he'd already figured out what their plan was because that's his go-to move that's how he expects things to go he knew what they were going to do and this was just his extraction plan fake his own death and move on and go back to whatever he was doing before and just keep watching them because you know he's going to keep watching them especially once you know that it's gabriel and not just some random trickster but as soon as they all pull out their stakes gabriel's like You want to see a real trick? He snaps his fingers and the chainsaw massacre dude appears behind Sam and tries to attack him. Dean's about to go in for the kill himself when one of the lingerie models on the bed comes and wrenches him down to the ground and gets the stake away from him. Like all of these tricks that he's played are essentially his puppets. Sam gets tossed around Dean gets literally tossed up onto the stage, onto the bed, and these two lingerie models are basically tag team wrestling him down. They could have had a nice massage and a friendly roll in the hay, but nope, they're gonna... (laughs) This is like the worst case scenario massage. Bobby goes in to attack the Chainsaw Massacre dude, and he saws his stake in half, so now he doesn't even have a weapon. Sam tackles Chainsaw Massacre guy, while Dean is basically getting punched and completely beaten up by these two women while Gabriel just sits in the audience eating a candy bar and like, ooh, ah, ah, making faces at every time Dean gets hit. Like, this is the most enjoyable thing he's seen in a while. Dean gets thrown into the audience, like into the front row of seats right in front of the trickster. And he stands up and is like applauding the show. And he's like, I, Dean, 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 I did not want to have to do this. And while he's standing up, Dean spots the stake a little ways away over by Sam. Sam spots it. They make eye contact. Sam throws the stake to Dean. Dean stands up and plunges the stake into the trickster's chest and falls back into his chair, supposedly dead. But as I said before, as he stands up, he says, Dean, I did not want to have to do this. And as Dean plunges the stake in, Dean's like, me either. Like, he didn't want to kill the guy. He, he liked his style. He made him laugh. He had a moment of entertainment with this guy. And 
now that he realized and saw through the trick and isn't angry at Sam and realizes it was this guy pranking them the whole time, he's impressed with the guy. He didn't want to have to kill him, but the weight of obligation of having, feeling like, you, you know, he was manipulated into it. This is what he believes he needs to do. As the stake sinks in, the chainsaw guy gives one last rev of the chainsaw and disappears. The two lingerie models on stage give one last (gasps) and then disappear. And then the trickster is apparently dead. You know, all of his tricks are gone. I mean, the whole stage set of the bed and everything stays. So, like, I don't know what whoever is going to find this room tomorrow morning is going to think seeing all that there. Unless, you know, Gabriel probably cleaned it all up on himself, you know, (laughs) after they leave. But it would be hilarious thinking that somebody's going to come into class the next morning and be like, what the hell? (laughs) Was someone making porn in this room? Like, what happened here? But no, I'm, I'm assuming he cleaned it all up and got rid of any evidence that he was ever there at all. Dean's last comment after, you know, he makes sure Sam and Bobby are okay is he takes one last look at the trickster's body and is like, man, I gotta say, he had style. His last thing is to just compliment the guy on his style. So no wonder Gabriel was so bemused by them, you know. <laughs> then they all hurry out of the building because as Bobby said let's get the hell out of Dodge before somebody discovers that body they don't want to be tied to a murder because as far as they know that body's still going to be there and the mess is still going to be left behind and I wonder if they ever looked through the paper to see if there was ever any evidence of what happened there or what the cops were using as an explanation for how this entire bizarre scene came to pass because I'm assuming it just never gets discovered because it's not real. None of it's real. And I wonder why they would not at least follow up by like searching for a news article about it or anything. But nope, all the weirdness just stops in this town. As they're about to get in the car, Sam stops just long enough to offer a non-pology where they're trying to get their words out, but can't really, you know, he was just trying like about everything kind of like, Uh, stuttering out and can't say you know I'm sorry I accused you and I was wrong and Dean saying yeah well I'm sorry I thought you would do that to baby and I'm sorry I accused you of being whatever for having lost your laptop and it's all good and Dean's just like yeah me too but they can't get any of those words out so (laughs) they finally drive away and we go back into the building and we see somebody coming into the auditorium walking right over to the trickster's body and looking down at it like, oh no, that's been discovered. But of course, it's the actual trickster just come there to clean up his mess. The body that Dean stabbed disappears the same way that the chainsaw massacre dude and the two scantily clad women did. And then we turn to see who the figure is that discovered the body. And it's the trickster having another candy bar. And that's just how the episode ends with that shot on him. We don't get any follow-up on what Sam and Dean do next. We don't get any follow-up on them cleaning up their hotel room before leaving town. We don't get any shot of Bobby going back to his car. We don't get any, well, that that was great. You know, good thing we got that guy. Nothing. That was all the follow-up we got. And I love it. (laughs) That the only follow-up is, hey, 
here's a character you know you're going to see again. And that's it. But he taught them a little lesson about being manipulated by the story. Because they were. Because they think he's dead. Obviously, this isn't a lesson that that's really going to sink in for a long time to come. But he is the catalyst of that. Seeing the story for what it is and the manipulation of the story. Because honestly, isn't that what Chuck's been doing to the story the entire time? And here's just Chuck Jr., a version of an aspect of Chuck that likes to mess with the story just to see what'll happen to push people into doing what he wants them to do or to suffer because he wants them to suffer. And it's just so Chuck, the fun-loving version of Chuck, as opposed to the horrific version of Chuck, like we will get to the bottom of. But yeah, our introduction to the trickster, our introduction to what we will eventually know is Gabriel and the narrative of the show told through a Rashomon lens of two alternating and often opposing stories of the same set of events. You can't understand the whole picture if you're only looking at it from one point of view or at the other point of view, but you have to kind of like find a way to make it all meld together and see what's really going on. And there is a through line through the entire series. If you take that step back to Bobby territory here, using this episode as an example, where you can see the through line through all of this, that if you're only looking at it from, to use the metaphor of this episode, Dean's point of view, you're going to miss stuff. And if you only look at it through Sam's point of view, Again, just using this episode as a metaphor, not saying literally from Dean's character point of view or Sam's character point of view, but they each don't see each other clearly in some ways. And we see how they react to the other, like Dean reacts more chill until Sam hurts his car or he believes Sam hurts his car because he has physical evidence in his hand and trusts in his physical evidence, things he can see with his own eyes, etc. Or from Sam's point of view, where he just gets angry instantly and refuses to believe or hear anything the other person is telling him. It's like two different viewpoints from which to experience the narrative. And there is a medium in between where you can step back and go, well, yeah, I can see his point of view and I can see his point of view, but look, the truth, you all are missing it because you're yelling over it. (laughs) So yeah, that's how I try and approach the show. I try and find the Bobby point of view, (laughs) not Bobby the character because, hey, he's just another character in the show. But that zoomed out point of view where you can find what works as a through line and sort of just discard the rest as necessary because Some things don't fit into the through line. Some things are just what the fuck moments. And (laughs) the through line I've chosen, at least I I, I could choose to discard some of my through, what I consider through line moments and pick up some of the what the fuck moments that don't fit my narrative that I have chosen to view the, the show through. But the show doesn't work that way for me. It doesn't make sense as a whole narrative for me. I've chosen the ones that make 
the whole entire series make more sense, not less sense. So (laughs) trying to see it as a whole, and I know that's really hard to do to 327 or 326, if you're me, episodes that actually matter that, or even 325 to those of you who reject the final two episodes, whatever. There is a way to make it tie in and make sense as a narrative, as a cosmology, as character development arcs that make sense to me. And this episode is a nice tidy metaphor for how I do that and for how it works in the show, even if the show didn't intend to make it a metaphor for any of that when the episode was actually written and that only in hindsight did it become a super tidy metaphor for how they chose to write the show going forward. It's almost like they saw these kernels of ideas of what the show could be and then just wrote into that based on the foundation of episodes like this. And honestly, bless them for realizing what they had and just running with it and building on it in a mostly coherent manner. So that brings us to the end of the episode. This episode functioned as a nice sort of character reset for Sam and Dean where they'd been lying to each other earlier in the season and then angry at each other through the mid portion of the season. But now as we start to tip over in towards the end run of the season, they're working together well in the next episode. Season two, episode 16, Roadkill. It's a really good monster of the week, but almost as much as it's a monster of the week, it's a really interesting character study, not just of Sam and Dean, but of the main character that they're trying to help in this next episode. And Sam and Dean get to work together as a team. They've gotten over a lot of their baggage. I think the apology at the end of this episode really was more for everything that's happened this season to this point, not just for what they said when the trickster got mad at them. I think that was functionally an apology for Sam being angry at Dean for not telling him about his destiny and Dean being angry at Sam for, or frustrated or whatever with Sam over having to have this destiny lumped on him too, of having to look out for Sam and kill him if he had to. I think a lot of this was just like a big old, yeah, okay, we're on the same page. And the next episode really sort of lets them be on the same page for at least one episode, which I sincerely appreciate, even if it's another one that sort of plays with reality and what the audience knows versus what they will find out by the end of the episode. So again, it's another episode that's fun to watch knowing what happens in advance and knowing the trick of the episode because it feels almost like a completely different story when you know what's going to happen. And I appreciate that as well because the entire series functions that way too. When you know the trick of it, it gives you a different perspective with which to look back at the entire series. And hey, I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. So Kind of feels like a groundbreaking and important thing to discuss for me. (laughs) Anyways, until next week, you can find me on Tumblr at Mittensmorgel or at SPN George. 
You can find me on Discord at Mittens, hashtag 4865. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Mittens Morgul, but I also have an SPN George Twitter now, which I I think I've used to tweet out episodes and that's it. But <laughs> like my episodes. So like I haven't really used it and uh, keep forgetting it's there until it's time to like post these. But, you know, message me there if you want. I'm there. Or you can email me at mittensmorgul at gmail. And now that we've gotten to the end of another episode, I was trying to remember there was a, uh, at the end of season two, I had originally like talked in one episode about wanting to do a special episode about like the Winchester family or hunting. And I can't even remember what I'd said. And God, do I really want to go back and listen to 35 episodes of my own voice talking to try and remember what on earth I said I would do as a special episode. But uh, I can't remember what it was. So <laughs> I had an idea for it and then I just totally lost it. So I don't know what I'm going to do. But I think I might do a special episode at the end of this season. So if anyone has any ideas on what I was intending to do, <laughs> message me. Or if you have your own idea of something you'd like me to talk about specifically and or in more detail drop me a message. I'm super thrilled and happy to hear from everybody anyways about anything at all ever. (laughs) And at this point, I think I'm just tired of talking. Unfortunately, the trickster makes me want to talk a lot because gosh, we love him. I mean, we hate him, but we love him. (laughs) Anyway, I hope everyone has a lovely week and I'll talk to y'all soon. Have a good one one what I always say that have a good like a good one what a good uh sleep a good uh dinner like (laughs) a good uh have a good cookie Uh, have some good pie that reminds me I have pie I'm gonna go eat some pie it's pumpkin yes